So, um, what I want to talk about tonight is this bizarre Talmud that we find in the book of uh, Brachot. Brachot is the first book of the Talmud, and it talks primarily about Brachot. We know that in, in Jewish life, when you eat something, you make a blessing before that. There's six different blessings you make before foods. There's several, three blessings you make after foods. And there's a lot of details and a lot of different foods. Some foods are like in the murky area between different brachot and a lot of discussion regarding that. Uh, but it also has, a, a, at the end of, of the book, it talks about dreams, like four or five pages about like, what are the interpretations of what do you see this in your dream and that in your dream? What does it mean? And all these very interesting things. Uh, and tucked like in the whole dream discussion on page 57, you find the following statement. And I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read it to you. I can say it be vrit in, or in, in, in Aramaic, but I'll give it to you first in English. And I teased this once before. Three themes are a measure of the world to come. That's but, in Hebrew? That, that, wow, no, that's, that's in English first. Shlosha me'ein olam haba. There's three themes that are me'ein, are, are like, or a measure, are, are, are in some way similar to olam haba. Right? Olam haba means the world to come. We'll see if we can learn some more about it. Right? Some other world. Okay. What are the ve'elohein? And these are the three things. Shabbat, shemesh, shemesh means the sun, and tashmesh. Now, Tashmish is an ambiguous word. So the Gemara asks, what does the word Tashmish mean? Tashmish demai. Which Tashmish are we talking about? Elam. We mentioned that. I mentioned this in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Ben's house. Yeah, before Pesach. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I teased it. I teased it. Yeah. Tashmish. Tashmish. What does it mean? Sexual relations? Right. It's a biblical. I mean, it's not. Nobody uses it. I don't think it's a common use. Well, I don't think so. What does it mean in. Yeah, so it's, uh, the Talmud asks, the Talmud says, wait a minute, Tashmish has multiple meanings. So Gemara asks, Tashmish demai, which Tashmish are we talking about? Ilema Tashmish Hamita. We'll get there, yeah. Yeah, okay, I'm <laughs> If you'll say perhaps it's Tashmish Hamita, which means intercourse, uh, sexual intercourse, that can't be, says the Talmud, Hamik Hashkachesh, it makes someone weak. Minkhashkachish is Aramaic, the same, the same language that your ketubah was written in. Uh, it means to make someone weak, exceedingly weak. Okay. Ella tashmish dekavim. Rather, it must be going to the bathroom. Can you mean specifically like defecation or just in general? Yeah, that's what it seems like, yeah. Okay. That's the Talmud. And if I just told you this, I say, here's a sampling of Talmud. Is this written by some of the world's greatest geniuses that we've ever seen? <laughs> or is this a bunch of gibberish? You would, I don't know. You might, if that's all you knew about the Talmud, you might have that question. You know, they all might have lived in Colorado at the time. I don't know. You know, it sounds like a very strange statement. Oh, yeah. We're talking about this idea, this core central idea to Jewish belief, this olamaba, this other world that exists. We don't know a lot about it. There's not many definitions in all of Jewish literature about what this world is. We, we, we'll go through them maybe today. But, you know, the Talmud is instructive. Like, we're trying to convey a message. Like, a group, uh, you know, a, a thousand rabbis, 1,500 years ago, when they signed off in the final text of the Talmud, which was edited multiple times, they decided that this little, you know, two lines should be for posterity right, included in the Talmud. It's obviously teaching us something. But what it's teaching, it doesn't, there seems to be no manual. It doesn't say, well, what this actually means and what the lesson is and what the connection is. It seems very bizarre. And you know what? 
This is an example of what we call Agadita or Agadic Talmud. The Talmud is, is split into two sections or two kinds, two modes of instruction. You have Halacha or Shmaitza. I'm saying two words, by the way. Anytime you say two words, it's because the Talmud is written in Aramaic. Thus, there's the Aramaic word for everything and the, and the Hebrew word for everything. Like the word Talmud, we're all, we're all familiar with that word, right? Talmud, we all heard the word Talmud, right? But who here has heard the term Gemara or Gemara? Everyone's heard of that as well? Mm-hmm. Well, what's the relationship between Talmud and Gemara? Same it's the same exact that. thing. Gemara is in Aramaic and Talmud is in Hebrew. So halacha is means law in Hebrew, and shmaitza means law in Aramaic. So, um, so the, the the half of the Talmud, the vast majority of the Talmud is law. So, like the laws of Shabbat, very detailed laws, the laws of brachot, the laws of of damages, of interpersonal. Like you find a lost object, or two people are quarreling over an item, or just very. All the details. You know, we have lots of laws in the Torah, 613 mitzvahs, and lots of details. Not all of them are spelled out. And lots of law. It's a book, book of law, primarily. And then every once in a while, you have a little piece of Talmud that's called uh, Agadita, which means it's philosophy, it's lessons, it's ethics, it's something, it's ideas that are coming to teach you how to behave in your life or what to think about, you know, philosophically, intellectually, ethically. And what you find with the, with the Agarata is that, that that mode of Talmudic construction is almost exclusively written in the form of stories or allegories or euphemisms or uh, metaphors. It's always shrouded. It means the clear intention of the Talmud is not just written out blatantly. It's always hinted to. It's like, it's like this. And, he, and this is a great example of a piece of Talmud, a piece of Gemara, where it's teaching us something about Olam Abba. So it's clear it's about Jewish philosophy. You know, Olam Abba is not practical to us, uh, you know, in our lives. It's, it's some other world that we're not, live, we're not privy to. So it's obviously philosophy. Okay, so this is Agarata. This is that kind of Talmud where the true intent of the Talmud is shrouded. And our job when we study that is to try to understand it. You know? So this is not a question for so Talmud, right? Yes, yes. It's intended to explain or to clarify, right? The, yes. The non-written part of the Torah. Mm-hmm. And then they leave things like this where nobody knows actually what they meant at that time. Well, so at that I, time, they thought this was, oh, this is so clear that nobody would actually... So, so like this. No, 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 Then everybody explained the Mishnah and then everybody explained the explanation. And then, no, but it's designed to not be understood. This is by, all by design. It means the intention of the authors of the Talmud when they wrote halakha, law, was to make it as clear as possible. And if you study Talmud, any page of Talmud, it, you'll see how the questions and the and analysis and trying to get to the core of the details of the minutia of all the law is, is, is exhaustive. Yet, you, and it, that's clear that that's the intention, to get to the bottom line. And sometimes it's so confusing because it, it goes... It keeps on asking like questions and analyzing from every single angle because it wants to get to the bottom line. It wants to get to the law. Yet here, deliberately, it was meant to be shrouded. And the question is, why? Uh, and there's a few answers. I like to say that the, the deepest secrets of Judaism are not dispensed like gumballs. You don't put a quarter in and say, right? And say, oh, I want, I want wisdom. Let me sit back on my, on my, uh, on my hammock. And smoke a cigar and drink, you know, drink a beer and get Torah wisdom. You know, 
or Torah philosophy, the deepest things. Of, it's like, you know, people start to go to Kabbalah Center, right? They want to learn the deepest things about Judaism. And, but they want to, you know, they want to re- wear those red little red strings. You've seen those red strings? You know, yeah. right? This one? Oh, goodness. <laughs> so, so, like, you, you, think, <laughs> you think that you, you wear a little red string and it does anything for you, you know? Like, what? You know, you think, you think that, like, oh, if you just go to, like, a basic rudimentary Kabbalah 101 class... You suddenly, you're like an expert in all of Jewish mysticism. <laughs> and that's not the way it is. And the Talmud clearly says these are the, the wisdom, the secrets of Jewish thought. We're not going to make it easy for you to understand it. Yes, but at the same time, I feel, for example, the Ten Commandments, right? They're yes. so important, so critical. Yes. It's like, okay, this is it. I won't put it in a weird discussion between two rabbis, right? Mm-hmm. This is it. These are the ten. They're so important that I will spell them out like clearly and without any higher thought more than it should. So if there is, I mean, but, if there is this. this no, but if the, it's really but important. The, you want to okay, but, the, the but Diego, you there's an assumption baked into your question. As most of your questions have an assumption baked into it, and that is that there's so any sort. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, um, and that is that when the Talmud says these kind of ideas. It's debate. There's never any debate in Agarata. Never. There's never a single debate. When you find the debate in the Talmud, it's all in law. This, it's, it's not debated. It's just said, it's put out there, not explained. There's no footnotes or anything like that. And you're on your own to try to figure it out, to decipher it. So it's not about debate. It's, it's there. It's all there. It's just, it's, it's hidden. It's telling us something about a very core idea of Judaism, Olam Or maybe there's multiple layers of, of interpretation. Remember, it's not law. You don't have to behave in a certain way. And we have, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure Ben 2.0 could tell us maybe uh, of, of, of I always, sorry, I always do this to him. Yes. But we have the idea of shivim panim batorah, right? There's 70 facets of Torah. That's, that, that's one idea. Another idea that Talmud says several times that, um, that the Torah is compared to a stone that you take kipatich, you potsets sela, like a patish, a hammer, destroys a rock. And it, lots of, when you take a hammer and you hit, you hit the rock, lots of shards going in all different kinds of directions. Well, it's brought down three places in the Talmud. One place in Kedushin, one place in Sanhedrin, and the third place, um, I don't remember. Three places. And what's that? Yeah. And that, by the way, that, that particular Talmud happens to be Another great example here, guys. I'm sorry if I'm just like so many introductions, you know, like w- w- it'll be nine o'clock and we'll lose Jeff. And then I'll say, well, we're about to start. <laughs> so I'm always worried. When we the so, first one. Sometimes when the Talmud tells us Agarata, it takes one lesson and divides it into three parts and scatters these parts on different, on different places in the Talmud. Thus ensuring that only someone who is so well-versed in the Talmud that they actually have encountered these three puzzle pieces and had the presence of mind to realize that these were pieces that have to go together, only that kind of person will actually get the lesson. It's genius. It's like, it's like what they did in, it's like, a, it's, it's, it's like, it's like encryption. Like the only way for someone to know is if you have the keys and therefore you take one lesson, you divide it into three and then someone might not even know that like you'll read it and say, this is, doesn't make any sense. Like, 
Yeah, to the sense that it's just one part of the puzzle. You have to have multiple pieces to make the one picture. So that's another example of how this form of Talmud is sometimes shrouded. Right? It's the intention is clearly not a, clearly not present at face value. Did you find it? Yeah. What's actually interesting about that particular piece of Talmud that uh, that uh, Ben is looking for is that it brings this in three different places, and three different places is it, it explains the verse in three different ways. The problem being is that the same author, if the same author, Tanu the Be'er Bishmal, the same author saying the same verse in three different ways, which is impossible because the core, one of the core elements of Talmudic exegesis, which is the fancy word of saying, nothing to do with, nothing to do with JC, it's, it just sounds like that. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the core principles of Talmudic uh, exegesis, which means like derivations, is that you can only use every verse for one law. So that's one verse equals one law. If you have three verses and you have three derivations, it must be that it's three different guys and three different ways to use the same verse. Thus, if you find three derivations from the same guy, you have a big problem. What's interesting about that particular... Didn't they kick him out? Who? They kicked him out and said, you're right, being too weird. I don't know. Is that the story? No, it's, it's well. Tani Shmuel. Tani Shmuel. It's not Rabbi Shmuel himself. It's the it's the it's the institution of okay. Rabbi Shmuel. But he was the one that was. That I don't know. I remember that. Which was that? Yemir Silver Rabbi Yezer or Omega Yemir Whoever was asking all these weird questions. Maybe. They said, just leave. Just get out of here. <laughs> just. Yeah. Okay. So so that so that's what we're we're, we're going to try to decipher. We're going to try to take this Talmud. I'll repeat it again for you, Miriam. We'll take the Talmud and we're going to try to deconstruct it and use other other sources from all across Jewish literature to see if we could maybe perhaps understand what the heck is going on in this particular uh, bit of insight. And it says that we're talking about Olam Haba, which means an alternative universe or a different universe or an upcoming universe, different world. And the Talmud says it's compared to three things. Three things are a measure of the world to come. Number one, uh, Shabbos, the mitzvah of Shabbat. Number two, Shemesh, which means the sun. And number three is Tashmish. And the Talmud says, well, what does Tashmish mean? Either it means Tashmish uh, Hamita, which means intercourse. The Talmud says, no, it can't mean intercourse. That makes, that makes someone weak. It must be going to the bathroom. And thus concludes the Talmud with no more uh, insight uh, or instruction for us to maybe gain some sort of understanding of what exactly is the lesson being conveyed. So that's what we're going to try to do. What do y'all say? Okay, so what questions do we have, Tom? Let's let's try to let's try to organize our questions. Well, the first question is, what's Olam Haba? It's just it's it's just it means Olam, which means a world, Haba, which means upcoming world. What does that mean? When do we get there? Uh, what happens there? I have a core question. Another yes. Where in Judaism is the first source for saying you will actually live when you physically die? Because, from my understanding. Um, that is a pretty new idea, which probably came in from... But didn't the Rambam say yeah, that? Uh, yeah. Even the Rambam, if, if he does say it, if you know the source, he's, I would consider him late. Only no, the Rambam, no, so it's, it's many, many, many times in the Talmud. But in fact, the Talmud says, this is... In the, I, I'm not talking about like, because I'm not talking about a lot of... No, 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 it's first in the Torah. Firstly, it's, it's in physically, the, you die, but you continue. Tchiatam No, okay, so between when you die and 
So your question is in the intercession between where so where, where the sources of the yeah. <clears throat> well, the okay, the, 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 the Talmud, many places in the Talmud talks about that. The whole, like in the intercession period between death and resurrection. Well, well, all the Jewish people were resurrected, right? The, no, but the, the significance but, of that time is, is actually not, uh, you know, we kind of overthink the importance. Like, everyone's like, oh, gosh, what happens after we die? Uh, you know, everyone's like, that's, a, that's maybe the, you know, the most exciting question of all. So basically, like, what I'm trying to ask, is that a Jewish idea or... A, well, yeah. They're, so, so the t- they're heading towards that the Jewish idea is resurrection and all... Yeah, well, the Talmud has discussions just off the top of my head in, in Sanhedrin 91A and B... Well, there's a cat in the house. I assume that's yours. That's okay. Um, that's one of the, if you remember, Ben, that's one of the discussions that uh, Rabbi Judah the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, um, otherwise known as Rabbi in the Talmud, he has an argument with a fellow by the name of Antoninus, who is none other than Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. According to our fact, arguably, Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, the Roman Emperor, we know he was a Roman Emperor, right? we know for sure. Which one? But likelihood that it's Marcus Aurelius Antoninus who assumed emperorship in the year 161. And, of course. Of course. And he had a debate with Rabbi Judah the Prince as to, what, uh, as to how there could be culpability for the body and the soul once they're separated. So he deals with the fact that, well, the body can be punished because look at the body. I'm nothing without the soul. I'm like a rock. I'm totally immobile, totally useless. And the soul can say, look at me, I'm flying around like a bird, right? I'm not harnessed. I don't have the tools to, to implement my, my, my will. So therefore, how could there be any retribution? How can we be held accountable for any of our deeds or misdeeds, right? Positive or negative, because the soul can't be punished or rewarded. The body can't be punished or rewarded. Because look at them each independently. Independently, they're, all, they're each useless. You know, the, 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 the soul can't. Uh, can't accomplish anything. The body can't accomplish anything without the other. So what did it, what did, that was the question Antoninus asks Rabbi, and Rabbi responds. Rabbi, he's just called Rabbi because of his significance in in, in Jewish history. So Rabbi responds and tells him that there was a king who had an orchard full of beautiful young figs, and he hired two watchmen to watch. Yeah, one's blind. One's blind. You guys know this. One's blind and one's lame. And then uh, they conspire the blind one and the lame one. The blind, the blind one, the lame one says, "The blind, hey, I can see these beautiful trees. Um, why don't you do? You'll do me right, and I'll direct you. And and we'll go. We'll eat the trees. And they go and they hop. How the 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 blind guy? The, the, I'm sorry. The lame guy hops. The lame but with vision hops onto the blind guy and he directs him and they eat all the fruits and whatever. And then the king comes back and says, where's the fruits? And the lame guy says, look at me. I can't walk. Clearly wasn't me. The blind guy says, look at me. I cannot see, but clearly wasn't me. So what happens? So that, 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 that's what the, uh, you know, so that's what Rabbi tells him. So he tells him, listen, you know what the king did? He takes the blind guy. He puts him, uh, I'm sorry, he takes the lame guy, he puts him on, he piggybacks onto the blind guy, like they were, and he judges them as one. So too, God takes the soul, reinfuses it in the body, and judges a man as one. So indeed, there cannot be judgment of a soul without a body and a body without a soul. So that's also a, a, a kind of the imagery of, of, of resurrection. Uh, but, just to finish, just finish this point, one second, um, if I may. Uh, to finish this point, the Talmud um, 
the Mishnah, even way before the Talmud, the Mishnah says that uh, gives a list of the people that have no portion in the world to come. Right? All of this is portion will to come, and these are the ones that don't have portion will to come. And one of the things that it includes Haomer and Chiatametim in Torah. Someone who says there's no resurrection from the Torah, from Torah Eretz sources, and the Talmud says, "Well, what do you mean? Where, where, where's the source?" The Talmud reads, "I believe it's between 15 and 25. I lost track of how many sources it brings from the Torah that." The Torah itself, not, not anything later that could be invented by rabbis and some some conspiring, you know, cynical conspiring rabbis want to make our life miserable. None of that. From the Torah itself, uh, that 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 resurrection, thus the continued vi- viability of of a human soul and body after death uh, from the Torah. But these are two different things. Resurrection is one, and the other one is the eternal. Olam Abba. Yes and no. Uh, Nowhere is there a manual for deciphering this. However, it's, it's very clear. Um, like, for example, I'll tell you the example what, the, that I found. I know we're doing way off topic, I know, but is that a problem? <laughs> no, I'm asking. Yeah, okay. The Talmud says, well, what's the rationale for saying that someone who does not believe in, the, in, in resurrection from the Torah did not have a portion of what to come? Talmud says, because, hey, he says, uh, he says it doesn't exist, so he doesn't have a part in it. Clearly linking those two together. Now, how it works, I don't know. That's a question I don't know. There's, I don't think I've found anywhere where it says, where, where it seems likely, this is just my interpretation, that from just studying all the, all the sources, that resurrection happens after, at some point, some future point, I don't know when, but after that, that's the kind of the, that's the, uh, that's the, uh-huh. That's when the judgment would be, the ultimate judgment. And somehow that is going to transition into Olam Abba. You cannot say that that's Olam Abba itself, because Olam Abba, very clearly, there's no bodies. And resurrection clearly is bodies. So when the body is shedded, I have no idea. I don't know. But the way it talks about Olam Abba is that we're, that we're just going to be souls. Okay, so we'll, we'll, let's, let's see what the sources say. Ha'olam Abba, ein bo, lo achila, velo shtia, velo yeshiva, velo amida. That's from the Talmud in Brachot 17, which means it's false. There's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no standing, there's no sitting. Rather, it's just righteous people uh, uh, that they're sitting, I guess, and their crowns are in their heads. Means their crowns are not on their heads. Their crowns are in their heads, which is also very interesting, very bizarre use of term. It doesn't say crowns are on top of their heads, so their crowns are biroshem, which means uh, uh, that inside their head. Huh? Inside their head. In, yes. What that means, I don't know. It's just bizarre uh, use. You, you know, you, we, typically, we typically think of a crown on top of a head, not in a head, right? Whatever. Uh, and they take pleasure in, in they, had, they enjoy the pleasure of God. They bask in the pleasure of God. That's one of the definitions that we have for Lama Ba. But it's clear that it, it, it takes place after the resurrection and not in the intervening period when we're just disembodied and just haven't resurrected yet. That seems very abundantly clear. Yes, yes. Thus, when someone dies, uh, I, I like to consider where they are as being like a, a holding cell, so to speak. Is there, is there any decision on whether you know, people would retain you know, individual uh, self-awareness or consciousness? After yes, that? well, that's or, the or soul. Or like you just go to sleep and then the alarm wakes up and you're at the judgment? Uh, no, it seems very clear that the consciousness continues. Absolutely. Uh, that's why we can have what's called Ganeidin or Gehenim or 
uh, uh, or we're pivoting into a really different subject. Um, what happens after someone dies? Well, one of three things can happen. Either they go to heaven, they go to hell. Those are two fantastic options. And the worst option is, re- is reincarnation, what we call. Now, I, now, remember, what I'm saying right now is not agreed by all Jewish opinions and philosophy, but it is the overwhelmingly mainstream opinion. Um, Maimonides would not agree with us, but Maimonides is kind of on an island in this issue. Uh, it's very, very clear from, uh, from the philosopher, major philosophers in Jewish thought that that is the uh, that this is the um, that this is the structure. So when you die, one of t- one of two very good things can happen: either you go to heaven or hell. Hell is not a permanent. We kind of we always get mixed up with the Christian understanding, but it's not a permanent destination. It's like a, a kind of like a power wash, or you know, you have, your car is a little schmutz. You like go to the you go, um, I don't know anything about Roman Catholics. Um, all, all I know is what the Talmud says: Hey, there's a maximum of, of 365 days, and it's a um, uh, it's like a car wash for the dirty car, but your soul is essentially fulfilled its purpose, and you don't need to be reinserted in another body to go for another round. So then you would go to heaven, and then you go to the heaven, which is a very glorified. I think it's like a, it's kind of like a, it's a way you're just waiting. You're waiting for for ultimate purpose and ultimate judgment. You know, uh, uh, good and bad. And why is reincarnation because reincarnation means because we I tell you, we like it. Like to us, that's the best option. Hey, we get to do it one more time. You know, we get to be around our friends and have a social reality. For us, we kind of think of that being the best option. But when we say it's the worst option, we're talking from our soul's perspective. Our soul uh, loathes this world. Our soul cannot stand being in such close proximity to a body. They're opposites. They're, uh, it's the most disharmonious marriage of all time. It's like, um, in fact, the, the Midrash says in, 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 I believe it's in Pekude, in Midrash Tanhuma, that uh, that the soul, every second the soul wants to escape the body. And if not for God kind of con- continually commanding the body, uh, the soul to, to remain in, you know, in place, it would just abandon any second. It can't stand it. It's torture for the soul. Then, then why do we thank God every morning saying thank you for returning my soul? Because, okay. That's, uh, well, because we are more than just our soul. We, we will, the better question is, well, why is God screwing us by having our soul be here? Right? That's essentially the question you're asking. No, I mean, because why, that's our opportunity. Because it's, it's opportunity. And even though we know that our soul is miserable here, we cherish the opportunity to become great. It means if our, well, the second our soul moves on, well, there's no more opportunity. Right? The second you're dead, you're, you're out you were. that's it. Whatever you accomplished, whatever you got, you got. Whatever you didn't get, you, well, you'll never be able to, to, get, back that, to get that back. So mitzvah, a mitzvah is, an, is a success that we can only have as a human. Thus, every second that we hear, we have to cherish because uh, because of the value that it has in that in the opportunity that it affords us. So, for our soul, if our, if we were to isolate our soul, well, the soul uh, remember the soul starts off life being super pure. The Talmud says that the second before a baby is born, the they they make him swear. Well, right, where, where does it say that in Talmud? Where? I don't know where. It's in Nida, the book of Nida, 30b. And a little bit later on... Is anything not said in that page? It's a very <laughs> fantastic page. And a little bit later on, on that same page, it says that the second before he's born, they make him swear, make a child swear. What do they make, what's the nature of the oath that a child takes before he's inserted into the world? Um, to hate tzaddik for al be a tzaddik, be righteous, and don't be wicked. Uh, and uh, you should know uh, that uh, that the Almighty is pure, 
the angels are pure and the soul that you have is pure. Right? And your job, if you preserve it in its purity, then good. If you preserve the soul in its purity, great. And if not, how many notes I'm going to take it from you? I'm going to kill you, basically. <laughs> right? Uh, thus, from the beginning, from the inception, the soul starts off as being 100% pure. And then it's inserted into the body and into a world where it's so uh, ripe to get sullied, to get smushed, 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 no. smushed, thank you, <laughs> smushed, uh, to, get, to get dirty and to get blemishes. And, and the, so from our soul's perspective, it's better to not be a prayer. However, that gives us a life and an opportunity. I have a few questions. Yes. By the way, a lot of this material I've never heard. Oh, yes. Remember, and I want to tell you that whatever I'm telling you right now, besides for the reincarnation little bit that we got off, it's all in Talmud. It's not something which is sourced in some Kabbalah of dubious origin. This is is from the mainstream perspective on Jewish life. That's been part and parcel. No, I'm, I'm saying no. I didn't say that. I, just, I, I said it's not in Kabbalah or of, of the Gemara. Turn back the no. I'm, I'm not, God, God forbid. God forbid. You know. The, you know. The, but the, but the Zohar is not for everyone. It's not for public. It's not for public consumption. It's not. Uh, Are you forty? It is absolutely amazing. No, I'm twenty-one. Celebrating my twenty-second anniversary. Twenty-third anniversary. Oh, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> so, question number one yes. is um, as far as the soul, I thought it was divided into, I guess, two quote, parts the animal soul and the godly soul. Well, in fact, or maybe we're, parts, we're, but right, we're getting, we're, once again, we're getting closer into the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah talks about five different parts of the soul, right? Neshama, Ruach, Nefesh, Chaya, and Yechida. What that means, I have literally no earthly idea. I don't, I have no idea. I know that that exists, I don't know what it means. And I know the Talmud doesn't refer to a soul as having this multiple parts. I don't know. I, okay. I, I assume I've never seen it sourced anywhere. I know that this exists. Whatever. Uh, that was the first question. What was the second question there? So the first question is you don't know. Okay. Second question. No, I, I, I said that it, this idea about <laughs> what it means. You have the yes. animalistic soul. You have the godly soul, and right. the two. And the idea of these five notes. But you're saying that's not a Talmud. That's only that's only. Uh, I haven't found it. I didn't, I didn't study the whole Talmud, but I haven't found it. I'm pretty sure it's not there. Okay. Um, second question is um, with the soul. I guess. Okay. I'm gonna start over. The angels. What is an angel compared to Joseph? Well, an angel. We look at an angel as some sort of spiritual force uh, that uh, is comprised of just intelligence or just spiritual reality in a way. And not, not having anybody, anybody, but we do find slight stories in, in Genesis that talk about angels taking up the form of a body to achieve a certain goal. Like if it's telling Abraham, we're talking to Sarah or whatever. Right. Uh, so wouldn't a soul down here be more, uh, have more potential than up there? Oh, yeah, of course. So why sure. would a soul not want to be down here? Because more it's more potential, but it's also potential for regression. Right, because of soul, if it starts off as being 100% pure, well, it could, when it comes and now it's mixed with the body, so it could, it in itself can't improve, right? What, the soul? The soul can't improve. The soul so could be preserved. You... Remember, what does it say? What's the oath, right? If you preserve your soul in its purity, great. If not, I'm going to take away from you. It's about preser- preservation, but if a soul preserves itself, 
essentially, remember, the, the soul and the body are, are mortal enemies, right? They, they don't coexist at all. So in order for the soul to preserve itself, the body has to compromise. Thus, the body becomes perfected. Thus, essentially, we could argue that the structure of the challenges and the conflict that exists in our lives is, is my soul going to get sullied by my body? Or is my soul going to remain pure, thus perfecting, purifying, fixing the body? Elevating. Elevating, right, right. right. Making the body more more soul-like. So yes. when you're, when you're Making the body work. less of an in, of, of an inhibitor or, or an opposite. Hundred percent. So when you're doing a mitzvah, you're not you're not elevating your soul. Oh you're no! Oh no! Elevating that. Oh, because that's a, you know you're on levels. And, it's a common, common, common misconception. But I, I think it's 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 a uh, it's a common misconception that we're elevating our soul. Our soul doesn't not you know, remember where our soul starts off. What's the first thing we hear about the soul? The soul starts off that's its right. life. As I'm saying, the first thing in a child's life is that it's pure on what level of purity? God's pure, the angels are pure, the soul's pure. It does not need to be purified. It's pure already. Sometimes it could get solid, and then you got to kind of undo the damage. But a soul starts off as being super duper duper pure. It does not need to be improved. The body, however, is, is designed to be the exact opposite of that, right? All of our instincts are counter uh, the soul. Okay. Right, okay. and that's where the tension exists. And I, I'm like getting two themes mixed up. Then. So, like a sari, right? Yes. Theoretically perfect, or whatever the case may be, but a person like myself has more potential than a sari. Right? More potential for for what? The you have more room to run. Is that what you're saying? No, to actually go to a higher level than a sari. Why is that? Because um, I have more. So from a Kabbalistic perspective, like, it's, it's, it's correction. Well, we have another source that. for that. Yeah. What? No, it's you don't really need to the Talmud. It says, You guys know that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bluffing this, right? Right? I said it last week? Sorry. I don't remember saying this last week. I said it last week? So let's say I say, I'll say it again. In the place where Baalei Tshuva, those that repent, mm-hmm. sinners that repent, where they stand, mm-hmm. even people that are totally righteous, that have never sinned, they can't stand at that place. So yes, there's a certain element of someone uh, having greater potential or more ability um, once they've kind of seen the dark side, if you know what I mean. Let me give, let me give a tangible example of what I'm saying. So. Um, who who would who would um, sorry I'm taking my jacket guys a little a little, a little sweaty here. Who would uh, who in Jewish in, in Jewish life pull up the sleeves also roll up the sleeves. Who in Jewish life who's the greatest man that ever lived? Moses. Moses. Okay, so what do we know about? So we if we were to analyze Moses' soul and every little piece of literature we find about Moses' soul, we would find maybe a lot of what it looks like when a man is you know on that level. You know, so we got to a little bit Moses a little bit more later on in detail. But we find the very, in the Midrash, so the word Midrash, everyone's here heard the term Midrash, Midrash, Midrashim. So um, the Midrash is a collection of Talmudic era teachings uh, that were organized in different Midrashic books on the Torah. Uh, the biggest one is called Midrash Rabbah, which means the biggest Midrash. That's what it means. So when, we, when people quote a Midrash, most often they're quoting from what's called the Midrash Rabbah. So there's one on Genesis, Exodus, right? Uh, Bereshis Rabbah, which means uh, the Bereshis or Genesis, the biggest Genesis, the biggest 
Exodus, Leviticus, etc., etc. So Devarim Rabbah, which means Deuteronomy Rabbah, is the Midrash on Deuteronomy. And all the way at the end of Deuteronomy, we find uh, the death of Moses. So all the way at the end of the Midrash in Deuteronomy, we find what the Midrash says about Moses. And we find a very interesting narrative about the death of Moses. And it talks about, God says, okay, Moses, time to die. Oh, well, okay, well, there's more backstory here. So more time for Moses to die. So what happens? Uh, right, God sends an angel to come take the soul of Moses. And, and what happens? The, 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 the soul says, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. Now, we, we already spoke about the fact that a soul cannot stand existing, uh, subsisting uh, in a body. It can't stand it. However, Moses, because he's the greatest man that ever lived, because he perfected his body to such a degree that the soul was in complete harmony. And it says, this is a good enough place. I don't, I'm, I'm fine here. I'm, I'm, I'm at ease here. And then there's a whole narrative, and, and God says, okay, not this angel, well, then the bad angel, the Samach Mem angel, and he sharpens his knife, and he comes, and Moses fends him off, and Moses kind of makes a list, a laundry list of his accomplishments, and he kind of outmuscles the angel, and then God himself comes, and God says to the, God, there's a narrative, a dialogue between God talking to Moses' soul, and God says, Biti, my daughter, come, I have a good place for you. And the, 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 Moses' soul says, there's no better, no more preferred place in the world than in the in the uh, in in the, in the body of Moses. So it's an example of Moses made his body means his soul was so pure and it was not sullied by the body because the soul instead influenced the body and the body became a, a less and less and less of a hindrance to, or of an opposite to the soul and it became such harmony that the body was the body and the soul were almost indistinguishable. They were both at the same soul level of, 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 of the way it was. Angels are pure, God's pure, the soul's pure. Well, Moses' body was also pure. And th- therefore, the soul had no problem of, uh, of, of existing within, 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 within Moses' body. Let's bring it full circle here. What happened? What do, we, what do we know about Moses? Like, What do we know about, you know, so we talked about the, uh, we talked about the story of the golden calf, right? What happened? What's the aftermath of the golden calf? Well, okay. What, what happens after that? <laughs> right? It's the start. Moses coming down from the mountain. Well, okay. After that, Moses coming well, down from the mountain. mountain. Right, and then he has this whole thing. He says, "I want to see." He wants to see God. God says, "Well, stand in the little cleft in the rock." Oh yeah. And then God says, "We well, can't see me. A man can't see me and live." Kilo Yani Adam Vachai. Uh, and then so he sees the bat, the whatever that means, okay? <laughs> it's filling, okay? And then it says, Moses came down, and the people couldn't look at him. Who remembers that part? Moses comes, and is and he's, the people, his face was so bright, that's the, mis- the, mis- the mistake. Karan means his face had a, had a countenance, had a radiance. His face had a radiance, and people couldn't look at him. So they put on a mask. And for the rest of Moses' life, which is another 39 years, Moses wore a mask on his face at all times, besides when he went to the old moment. Was it the frowning one or the happy one? I don't know. <laughs> now, you never heard of it. Well, that's, that, that's in the Torah. The, the, the Torah makes it clear. The Talmud says, in, I believe it's in... Yeah, yeah, I think he had the one. Yeah. The Talmud says, Pine Moshe... Ben, I'm always looking at you for trying to finish the Talmud. Pine Moshe... The face of <laughs> Pnei Moshe, Pnei Moshe Kipnei. Anybody want to guess? 
I was only four words. Pnei Moshe kepnei chama. The face of Moshe was like the face of the sun. Oh, of the sun. So here's the second thing. I don't know, man. That maybe right, right. Uh, you're you're jumping the gun here. But Moses, because his soul was not stymied and stifled and muffled and muzzled by his body, because his body was like soul-like almost. Thus, the full power of a soul came forth. So, what happens when you have a soul shining right at you? It's too bright. It's beyond the capacity of bodies to consume or to, to absorb or to relate to. So Moses is at such a level where his body is not opposite to his soul. Thus, the soul can penetrate through. Thus, what happens? People can look at him because they're looking at a soul, essentially. And they're looking at a soul, they just can't handle it. It's beyond their capacity. Yeah. Now, what's another thing that we see that's, that's in our... Well, that's that. Well, that's earlier. They just try to look yeah. at him. They to look away. That's what is another thing, yeah. by the way? What's another thing that in our world... That we, if we look at it, we have to quickly look away. The, the sun. sun. The sun. So, and it was tipped, we skipped to number two here. We're, we're told that Olam Haba is like the sun. There's one thing in the world that's me'en, it's, it's a measure of the world to come. Perhaps we could say that the sun is something which is beyond the capacity of us so long as we have a body to comprehend. We, we cannot have an interface with it. You look at it, you got to look away. And Moses, well, Moses was almost completely soul-like. Thus, the Jewish, the Jewish people can't look at him because they can't have, there's no interface that a, that a body has with the soul. Right? There's, there's no way of interaction, body and soul. Just like we have no way of interacting with, with the sun. So, 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 and, and Alama, so what does it tell us about Alama Ba? Alama Ba is a world where we don't have bodies. It's just souls. And thus, essentially, what the Talmud is telling us is that if we want to know where, it's giving us a hint about what Alam Abba is. It's giving us a hint. So and it says, it's Me'en Alam Abba, that the, that the sun is Me'en Alam Abba. What it's telling us is, just like the sun is beyond the capacity of a human, when, when humans comprise the body and soul, to absorb and to have a relationship, an interface with, so too, our Olam Haba world, where it's just souls, there's no standing, there's no sitting, right? There's just souls, right? We're stripped of the body beyond our capacity. And, and I want to just highlight here, what are the words of the Rambam? How does the Ram, how does Maimonides describe Olam Haba? Someone mentioned, uh, Jeff mentioned the Rambam. So I found like this. The Rambam compares Olam Haba and our complete impossibility of understanding it to a blind man trying to be to understand what color is right? if you told someone hey someone blind from birth they okay i want to describe to you what green looks like so ben's wearing a green shirt right ben 2.0 but right and you say like hey, listen green is is very um it's very luscious uh, grassy to feel grass well that's a green uh but the sky's blue it's, it's nonsense to them unless you've experienced it Unless you've had some sort of life experience that you could you know, call on, you will have no idea what you're talking about. Like, there's no way, there's no verbiage you can use to describe it. It's beyond your capacity. You know? You're blind, and vis-a-vis the spiritual reality, we're blind as well. Right? We don't have, we like the sun, we can't look at it. Another thing here. Um, when he talks about the spiritual pleasure, and he, he takes it a step further. The spiritual pleasures are so far beyond 
the physical pleasures that we can unless you've experienced it uh, you have no you have no way of even of even describing it you don't have the life experience to even articulate a definition of it just like we cannot have the relationship with the sun yes shoot when he came down the first time yes no i don't think so no well, what happened in the interim? Well, yeah, but Moses seized an opportunity, seized with an S-E-I-Z-E-D or S-E-I-E, I don't know which one it is. Well, just grabbed onto the opportunity, right? Uh, but in the interim, Moses, he interceded on behalf of the Jewish people, right? He sacrificed personal greatness in favor of the Jewish people, right? He took the Luchot, he smashed them, and he started the prayer, and he says, well, well what do the Egyptians say? And then he did said that the, 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 13, uh, the 13 attributes of mercy, right? Moses grew from that time. Moses changed. Uh, thus, Moses reached his full-blown potential at the end. So yes, Moses changed from 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 the, the first ascending uh, from the mountain to the to, to the third. Absolutely. So my question, yes, leading question. He said the second segment is all about well, Olam Haba has nothing to do with body, no body whatsoever. So that brings you to the third one, the patient. Well, we haven't done the first one. We haven't even done the first one. Um, I know I just I skipped ahead because right. of the Moses. So what about Shabbos? So what do you find here about Shabbos here? Wait, can you finish the story? Which story? Where uh, Moses how, how, how God pulled Moses' soul back. Yeah, so God, well, I, I plucked out the part of the story it's being called out here. I plucked out the part of the story that I wanted to say. There's, there's a continuation of the story. Yes, absolutely. Well, I know, but what is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't remember the exact details, but... Um, no, no, no. She well, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> okay. I don't remember uh, exactly. I don't remember, I don't remember exactly what what happens, but Moses dies in this very um, kind of spiritual. Back to the Talmud. This is in Brachos eight a. The Talmud talks about there's eight. There's nine hundred and three <laughs> different kinds of death. Deaths. Nine hundred and three. Nine oh three. Um, this is, once again, it's not from any Zohar or anything like that. It's from the Talmud. Oscar is the worst. Oscar is the worst, and the Shika is the best. Yeah. And the Talmud compares Oscar. How's Oscar compared to? Like, if you have thorns. No, thorns. It's eventually what happens when you get rabies, where, as if someone's Well, the Talmud compares it to... Thorns in the wool. Thorns in the wool. Like you, want, you have the thorns and the wool, you want to separate them. Right, the body and the soul, they got very knotted up together. The soul influenced, I'm sorry, instead of the soul influencing the body and purifying the body, the body influenced the soul. So the soul and the body are so intermeshed, to separate them is very painful. Right? Just like you want to pull, you have little, little bits of, of, of thorns that get stuck in the wool, little bits of wool that get pulled out with the thorns. It's, very, it's, very, you know, it's, it's a very um, messy separation. Uh, as opposed to the best kind of that's called nishika, which literally means to kiss. And uh, that's compared to like plucking a, a little hair out of a glass of milk, kind of very smooth. And, you know, it's just, it's totally uh, harmonious. You're thinking about the glass, the milk that has the glass, the, the, is that what you're thinking about? No. 
but it, it, it's just <laughs> it's very smooth. My milk without the- yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, so God tells Moses, you'll die with me since the sheep gone. He's like, and he finally accedes. But the fact that his soul was at such comfort, in such, in such a good place in his body, was a reflection of how he had perfected his body at such a point that it made it a, a, welcome, uh, a, a welcome environment for his soul. So Shabbat. Shabbat is a measure of the world to come. Why would Shabbat be considered a measure of the world to come? What, what about Shabbat is unique or special or... Uh, um, somehow has an overlap to Alamaba. And what, what does this teach us about Alamaba? Don't they say it's like 160th, 160th of the world to come or something? Or on on Shabbos, Shabbos is 160th or 160th. Well, sleep is 160th of, of death. Yes. death. But Shabbos uh, is maybe, maybe, maybe. Well, what, does that mean? what does that mean? Well, so it, it's giving us a taste of the world to come because it's the, the day, because you, the, the rest and the work and it should be a delight, a rejoicing time, mm-hmm. uh, but a time of rest as well. So, what are you saying? So, the world to come. There's, may, may, there's, may, I, just, I feel like I feel like you're tiptoeing between two of the reasons. I have wrote here down four reasons. I didn't say that. I said Shabbos is something. Is a there's a there's an overlap. That, it, that, that Shabbos is a, is a measure of the world to come. There's something similar in Shabbat that teaches us about Alam Abba. So I have four of them, and you're kind of, you're kind of vacillating, straddling both of them. So let me, let me, let me say it and tell me yeah, if you agree, please, okay? Please. So, who here has heard of the idea that this world is a 6,000-year world? Yeah. Have you heard about that? Yeah, we have 200 years left. Two, well, okay. Two, Where does that come from? Five seven seven four. Five seven seven five. Five seven five. Or it could be sooner if we do everything right. Right, right. So we've all heard that, and this is once again substantiated in the Talmud. If I'm quoting the Talmud many times. Two thousand years of two thousand years of Tohu. Two thousand years of Torah. Two thousand years of Mashiach. Tohu Tohu means chaos. So the first two thousand years is chaos. Then Torah and then Mashiach. So I have a whole class on what that means. Either yeah, way, yeah, yeah. we have the six thousand years, and then there's the seven thousand years. Then there's the Talmud also goes and say, "Well, uh, the seven of seven. Okay. And ki elef shanim be'enecha. The the verse I think it's in Tehillim tells us that a thousand years of God is like one day. I mean, a thousand years for us is like one day for God. So essentially. The model that God enacted for the world, okay, 6,000 years of this world, and then the 7,000 year Lama Ba is very similar to six days oh, for God. And and so, so six days, so the six days of God, uh, they, 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 um, they're a microcosm of the 6,000 years of us and the 7,000 years. That, that, that's, that, that's just the one. What, what does that mean? You know, okay, so that doesn't tell us a lot about what the nature of Lama Ba is. It just tells us, okay, the structure is very similar. Uh, but maybe we could go a little bit deeper. So we find, this is once again from the Talmud, and I think it's in a Vodah Zarah. I have a question. They yes. Absolutely. Let's do it. The dinosaur. <laughs> No, 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 no. So, do, do we know how the world will end at the six thousand? How what? How the world will end? Or will uh, it just be all the souls will go up and. Uh, it doesn't seem like it, it, it's. Is it an end or is it maybe is a transition? Yeah. 
I don't know. We don't. We don't know many Rashi. details. We talk about the idea of Mashiach. So Mashiach is. We think Mashiach as as a man or as an idea. But here it says it's two thousand years. It's a process. It's obviously not one. There's no two thousand year old guys out there, right? Are there? I'm not familiar with any. Right? No. It's it's a, it's a certain process, right? Too slow. Um, so how, how is this going to be? We don't know. Uh, and anyone who says they do know, right? Tipach rucham shemachash vetitzin. The Talmud says. Right? It means that they're just fooling themselves, right? They're just they're just causing agony and, and anguish and stress to themselves because they're trying to do calculations and machinations and and trying to do uh, uh, you know use uh, textual and 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 uh, and uh, you know literary uh, uh, machinations and uh, and chicanery to try to understand when when's the Mashiach coming and whatnot. We don't know, so I don't know the the question. The correct answer is I don't know. So I don't know. Does that derail everything? Huh? No, yeah, my point, I mean, the, there is enough details on how the whole thing was created, but I was wondering if there are sources for how the whole thing would be. Is, well, isn't it in the Torah? Doesn't it give us a hint? Of, yes, there's a lot of hints, point? but how how to actually take this, and what's said clearly is don't try to do this because you won't get anywhere. It's not calculating when he comes, but, but understanding what's going to happen. That's no? a, the, okay, so what's going to happen? So... Uh, there's a debate oh, in the Talmud between Rav and Shmuel. Exactly. <laughs> there's a debate in the Talmud between Rav and Shmuel. What's going to happen? And according to the Rambam, who's the authority in this issue, um, who's the one that collected all the sources about Mashiach and whatnot, he says, There's no difference between this world and Imot Mashiach, and there's a Mashiach. Rather, it's just the subjugation of the kingdoms alone. That's it. That's the only difference. What does that mean? Mm. I don't know. But clearly, uh, that's, 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 that's the opinion Wait, of Shmuel. The only difference between this world and the days of the Mashiach is subjugation to the kings or to the kingdom or to the, to the nations alone. That's it. So well, not much is going to change. That goes back to what, uh, what uh, Yishiyahu says when he talks of, in chapter 53, 54. Uh, about uh, the, the nations of the world going, oh, I can't believe what I heard, and, and all. Yeah, so it's going to be it's going to be a certain. I think it's a certain no, consolidation. You know. right, so it's a subjugation of who? Of the Jewish people, or all the You tell me. I, I would think if I had to bet, I would think of the Jewish people. Uh, right. That's that's the. These are the. Okay, so I told you the rate of the whole thing. So now we can go back to Shabbos. <laughs> what about the, the years? How did they count it? The thousands, two thousand. But what? How is it? Well, the years all stuff matter. You know, like the, I don't know the, the, how the years counted. In years are counted from Adam. We don't know what happened before Adam. Those six days, we have no idea uh, ha- what happened or what the length is. We meet the sun on day four. Well, what was day three? What what were the demarcations of a day? You know, how do you organize time on Earth without the sun? I don't know. That's the correct answer, right? Those six days are a mystery. We have thirty-one verses in the Torah about them, and we know nothing more. But they may not actually be days. They could be. Only- well, clearly they're not standard days like we have. It's, that's absolutely abundantly clear. Why? Because there's no sun till day four. I've number seen, one. Uh, number I've two. Seen, I've seen actually, uh, if I may, uh, a calculation based on the when, you know when the, the, the theory of the, the universe how it came out to be right from the Big Bang. There was enough mm-hmm. mass in a small regional space. The universe was small, so gravitational forces are very strong, <laughs> and relativity tells us that when there is enough. Uh, Gravitational force, there is the concept of dilatation of time, ah, yes. and dilation. So the time is coming in a different way. So somebody actually, exactly. a physicist, did the calculation of the mass of the universe at that time and so on. 
That's a, that's a physicist who, by wait, the way, wait, wait, wait. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about his name is Schrader, right? Schrader. Oh, Gerald Schrader. Schrader. Or Schroeder. 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 No, that's Schroeder. That's the argument. I, no, no, no. But yeah, yeah he's, he's trying to actually. He believes, he's, he's trying to make compatibility. Yeah, he's trying to make the compatibility. And, and what Genesis. He wrote the book Genesis in the Big Bang, right? No, no, no. Schrader is. But, they, they, but there are many people. But he did actually a calculation that I follow. Yes. Because I know Based something about relativity. And what you find is that the, when you count all the time, actually, in our years, it's about 14.5 billion years, which, which is, is exactly what people predict. That well, they, they say 13.8. But what's, uh, what's 700 million years in one's friends, right? <laughs> Nothing. Well, no, the thing is that those are actually very I mean, imprecise. It was 15.4, then it's now 13.8. It's but for, for, but it's uh, the same for physicists, it's very, that's a very precise thing. Going that's that a ballpark. Yes. Ballpark figure. We'll take 40 so it was actually very close to what... I mean, yeah. it could have been... This was, written in the, this was written in the 60s. It was, this idea was first developed by a fellow, by a rabbi, actually, a German rabbi. His name was Rabbi Schwab. He wrote this before everyone. Right? There's it's a book publication. Before anyone came up with this idea of trying to show the compatibility of the scientific model of the age of the universe... Oh, yeah, well, we can argue about this in later. In the 60s, this theory that he was using was not developed yet. Well, I mean, it's based on Einstein, though. Later because you had the, the, who were the two guys that made the, the light? So there was... That's 60 to 65. The, the, so that, was in 19, that was in the 60s, right? Where they had that in the 60s. Expanded universe. In the 60s, there were two thirds, two-thirds of the scientists believed that the universe was eternal. In, in, the, those in the 60s. In, in late Even 50s. the early 70s, scientists still believed that the universe was eternal. Two-thirds of them. They right. made a survey so... So the survey was in 1959. After, after, after this, they discovered radio expansion, they developed the inflationary theory of, of the universe and so on, because if you extrapolate back, there are problems of the horizon, which you can see right, right, based right, right, on right, right, right. But if you go back, then they have to develop this inflationary theory. So anyway, so this kind of came after. But the interesting thing is that they, when you use the most modern uh, theories of the universe, they kind of agree with the six-day view account for the... So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> But 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 back to like ben, back to your question. Time dilation from the correct. From the back to your, yeah. your so point. You we count our world from atoms. Once all that's done with, that's where we start. But, you know, the one common question yeah. I get is, you know, what about the dinosaurs? How do you how do you account for that? What about them? Well, they're obviously or. There's two. There's the two. What's the word? No. No. There's two different approaches. Um, there's two approaches. No, no, that that that's the third approach. I'm not even going to talk about that. Oh, you, that that's the, the, the two are, other approaches. In the, 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 the sixth day, they, they say tignium, the the which is big reptiles. So that's one theory. The one theory is that these are Tanima Gadolim that referred to in Genesis, and they died in the in the deluge and flood. And the argument goes that well, in the flood, in the flood, the vast. Yeah, Noah's flood, that's right. Yeah. So the vast sure? majority of... <laughs> the movie? <laughs> the vast majority of the, of the species died in the flood. Right? Um, and uh, the, argu- argues that the argument is that... Sorry, go ahead. Tasuto argues that the was actually a word from Ogari. Ogari? That what? What does that mean? I remember. I thought you were... No, no, but I... I <laughs> no. no, it's basically from the ancient Middle, Middle East and like way, way, way back. Of word for what? For some kind of species. 
That's yes. actually why we had you come out here to Memphis to answer that one specific yeah. question. <laughs> so if, that, if those are dinosaurs and they died in the flood, well, then maybe their bones were artificially aged by the flood as this very cataclysmatic event with all the sulfur and the heat and the water and the whatnot. How do you age anything? From my understanding, they can't age anything past from the flood back. And how do you age the earth or any bones that you do find anyway? Because uh, right, the that's, age of the earth well, created? well, that's or one theory. That? That's one theory that the that the dinosaurs the dinosaurs existed you know, over five four thousand years ago and they all died and they looked older to us because of the events that happened. That's one theory. Another yeah. theory is that no, they existed and the world's been around for billions and billions and billions of years. That's still compatible with Genesis. Those are the two. Yeah, theories. Say that was the sixth day. Yeah. However you're going to work yeah, out but, but, but this notion that the dinosaur bones were, were put on Earth by God to trick us or mess us or something like that. I, mean, I, I think that's a cop-out answer. I, I think you have to deal with the reality. And, and yeah, so I, I don't know. It means the fact that dinosaurs is why does it have to be in such con- – it's only if you stick your head in the, in the mud, so to speak, and take a very literal, literal approach, which we don't do, especially now with Genesis. Clearly, we have 31 verses. We don't have the full picture. So if you take a very little approach to, to Genesis, then you're a fool. That's what we say. Mamandis himself writes that, by the way, in his treatise on reward and punishment that we're referencing over here. He says, if anyone who takes the words of Chazal, so Talmud, takes them literally, they're a fool. I don't even want to talk to them. They're much worse than the people. Like I say that the guys, that the, the creation creationists, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. those guys are much worse because they're, they're, they're presenting the Torah in a, in, you know, in a, in a backwarded, you know, uh, 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 archaic manner where it's like it's it's backward it's not it's not it's not at all willing to accept even the most widely accepted you know tenets of science they take everything so literal yeah well, who says the Torah is literal I don't get it who says that every element of the Torah is literal we know that it's not so who says so no one says so only the idiots that's what we're saying the creationism yeah the yeah so we have we have the Talmud and we have the instruction to know what is what and, what, and how to understand things and you know like we have Talmudic statements that are clearly not literal. You know, it talks about in Baba Basra, it talks about uh, the waves that are 300 uh, uh, mil, and each mil is 400 parcels. We're talking about thousands of miles of uh, in the air waves, and the tip of the wave is fire. Clearly, that's not literal, that's a lesson. You know, that's not, and that's not obviously. What happens to the sun at night? Where does it go? Where does it hide at night? Another Talmud. Yep. He goes to sleep, right? It's just what's small as well. That's your answer. It's what it goes uh, that's out, and that's where the moon comes from. That's what Calvin's dad told him. They're in our Friday night service, isn't there something that talks about that? And what, what it says that God sees the creator? No, the prayer of the sun living uh, life. Well, it's, it's, By Chula Where God finished creating the heaven and earth? Is that what you're talking about? A lot of new stuff here, I know. Yes, yeah. 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 yes. Yes, no subjugation. Why is that? Well, what does that mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Subjugation of kingdom. Who is the king? Well, that's probably the simplest understanding, but 
as we know, uh, it's highlighted very often uh, throughout, let's say, the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur liturgy. Uh, we talk about the king that exists within each and every one of us, and that's our Yitzhahara, or our evil inclination. So maybe what it means is that the only difference is not referring to the kingdoms, you know, the government, so to speak, but it's referring to the internal king that we all have that dominates us and that hinders us from doing what our soul wants to do. Everybody, I, I gotta go. Back huh? Tomorrow, why don't you tell me about defecation? Defecation? Yes. Yeah, it's a little personal. Most interesting. Part. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, I got it for it. Yeah. <laughs> there is one. There is one for you. Yeah, so, so, uh, yeah. back to Shabbat. We good? We good. Okay, so we said the first thing that with Shabbat is perhaps yeah, in yeah. the microcosm six right. to seven, uh, six days of. God corresponds to 6,000 years of us. Next week, we're having it. Um, I don't have the Google Drive. Do you know where it is? Next week? Yes. Yeah. Where does send me the info? Next week, I'll still be on. So, uh, so that's the, uh, what we said is... Um, one second here. Yeah. So, um, so that's, that's the first thing we said. Now I want to say like this. Uh, we finally got in the Talmud in Avodah Zara. That's where we were. Sorry. Uh, the Talmud says as follows: Mi shetarach be'erev Shabbat yochal be'Shabbat. Mi shelo tarach be'erev Shabbat mehechan yochal be'Shabbat. Which means as follows: He who toils before Shabbat will eat on Shabbat. Uh, he who does not toil on Shabbat, what shall he eat on Shabbat? So what happens? So Shabbat is a day of consumption, work. <coughs> So, Shabbat is a consumption. One of the things that we cannot do in Shabbat is cook. All right? Or prepare, prepare, or prepare, I'm saying, but, but to cook food. So, if you want to have hot food on Shabbat, when do you have to make it? Before Shabbat. And that's the dynamic. And we know that if in a Shabbat observant home, there's always, it's always very hectic, right? Because you have a deadline that everything has to be done. All the lights have to be set, all the kids have to be bathed, everything has to be done before a certain point of time. And then as the clock strikes Shabbat, the mode just changes. Now it's about, okay, now you're enjoying what you worked so hard to achieve. Uh, and the Talmud says this, and it's not just telling us about Shabbat, it's telling us about life, life, you know. This world, compared to next world, is very similar to Friday to Shabbat. This is the world of action, of activity. Now we can accomplish. Now we could, uh, we could earn, we could, we could create, we could work, we could uh, produce productivity. Allah Remember we said that no, once you don't have a body anymore, it's just a soul, you cannot improve, you cannot accomplish, you cannot achieve. All you have is what you did beforehand as, as a human. So this essentially tells us not only about how Shabbat is very similar, because if you think about, well, what's life? Well, life is Lama Zeh, and then there's Lama Ba. Well, what's the difference? The difference is that Lama Zeh is work, you're, you're creating. Lama Ba is consumption, that's where, that's where we say that's the ultimate destination, reward and punishment. That's one thing it tells us. But what does it tell us also about the nature of reward and punishment? We think that reward, what's a reward? So the kid gets an A, you give him a lollipop. If he gets a D, you still give him a lollipop. He gets an, if he gets an F or whatever, you give him a little smack, right? In our perspective, every reward is separate from the activity that produced that reward, right? You do well in school, well, then you'll get something else. The Torah compares the reward of a mitzvah as preparing and consuming. Like you prepare food and you eat that same food. 
right? It's a, it's a certain reality. We view a mitzvah as creating a spiritual reality that is consumable in a spiritual world. Right? Just like you take the flour and you make bread, and what do you gain from the bread? Like, well, what's your reward? Well, your reward is the bread itself, right? That you produced. It's producing a, a, a certain thing which is consumable. So too, a mitzvah is producing a spiritual reality that, that you're going to consume. Well, who needs to eat that? I'm not hungry. Well, yes, you're not hungry now. But imagine you live in a world where all you have is a soul. And the soul, well, the soul needs to be sustained and nourished as well, just like a body does. But what sustains the soul? Could you give it pizza? No, well, I'm about, there's no eating, there's no drinking. It's not about giving a pizza. But it has to eat. Well, what does it eat? It eats spiritual food. What spiritual food? How do you make spiritual food? Where are the recipes? The Torah is a massive recipe book. All different kinds of spiritual foods. We even have it. It's said it very clearly in the Torah itself. Man does not just live on food alone. You have to have the word of God. What it's telling us is that there's a certain part of our physiology, our reality, that needs food, but it doesn't, can't eat bread. It can't eat bread. Cannot eat bread, for example. Cannot eat bread. It has to have another kind of bread. And, well, how do you get that bread, right? Shabbat. Well, you want to make food for Shabbat. Well, what do you do? You got to prepare food before Shabbat. Okay, so you want to eat a Lama Ba? Well, what are you going to do? You got to prepare food before, Shabbat, before a Lama Ba. Well, how do you prepare that food? By doing a mitzvah. Mitzvah is a recipe that produces something which is consumable in a Lama Ba. I'll give a little cherry on top here. Rabbi Chaim Lutzato said that a, a, what is that, a reward for a mitzvah in this world is another mitzvah. Well, it's not Rabbi Chaim Lutzato. He's quoting that. Rabbi Chaim Lutzato that's a Mishnah. Was that the Mishnah? Yeah. Rabbi Chaim Lutzato was, was born in 1707. The Mishnah was codified in the 2nd century. So I was quoting it then because I read it somewhere. He quotes it. Yes, he quotes it. He might quote it. Yes. So that's a Mishnah. Okay. Um, that's Schar Mitzvah Mitzvah. Mitzvah Doreret Mitzvah. Schar Mitzvah Mitzvah. Right? That's a, it's a thing. It's, I'm not yes. questioning the validity of your statement. Just, no, I, I, yes. No, but thank you, though. But let's find a different Mishnah. Wasn't this year uh, you cook on Shabbat, right? Well, you cook on, on holidays. Because Yom Kippur fell on Shabbat. So you had to have a meal for Shabbat. Or maybe it fell on Saturday. Yom Kippur, Kippur, Kippur this week Yom Kippur this week was on, was on Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, so then you have to... You can never cook on a, you cook on Friday for 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 for, for, for after you that. Like a double portion. I don't oh, you, that's why you have two chalupas, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> what if um, Yom Kippur fell on a Friday? Yeah, I don't think it ever happens. Doesn't happen. I don't yeah. think so. What? Doesn't happen, right? La adu rosh exactly. So, rosh hashanah cannot be on a Sunday or Wednesday or a or Thursday or a Friday. Yeah, doesn't work. Doesn't happen like that. And that's very complicated laws of of Jewish calendars and the exact length of lunar month and the exact length of a, of a of a solar year and how they interrelate and whatever. Complex mathematics. So I'll tell you guys another cherry on top here. So, but just real quick. So this year it was not. It was no. It was on. Yom Kippur was on Saturday this week. On Shabbos. Yeah. yeah, I don't. Tell me exactly what you. No, 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 the cherry on top. Don't worry. About it. So this is a cherry top that I think that our Hebrew speakers will appreciate much more than our English speakers. Oh, you're lucky. Bro. 
So we find like this. We find the following statement in the Talmud. In the, in the Mishnah. Find the following statement in the Mishnah. Al tihiyu ka'avadim ha-mishamshim et-arav al-manat l'kabel pras ela tihiyu avadim al-manat shalol l'kabel pras which means as follows. Do not serve God uh, like a servant who who tries to get a, a reward. Rather, it's like don't do it without the intention of reward. Right? It says the word pras. So if we know Hebrew a little bit here, the word pras is different than the word schar. How, Ben, would you define the difference between the word pras and schar? Schar is more like a salary. You like a, work as opposed to a pras. Like a prize or something random. When the Mishnah says, don't be like a servant that serves God in order to get a pras. It doesn't say schar. It says pras. What it's saying is, don't think that the mode of reward in Olam Abba is in the form of a pras, where it's something external to what you did. Rather, it's schar. It is schar. Schar mitzvah Baha'i Alma. Lecter, there's no schar mitzvah in this world. Right? But there's, don't think that it's a pras. Why? Because what is the reality of a reward, of reward for a mitzvah? It's the mitzvah itself. Because the mitzvah is the recipe that produces the spiritual food that you eat on the Shabbat. Well, not the Shabbat Shabbat, but the Shabbat of Olam Abba. And that's what we're told that Olam Abba is similar to Shabbat. There's a lot going on over here. It's the idea of a microcosm, six plus one. It's the idea of creating versus consuming, but it also teaches us a lot about the reality of a mitzvah, what it produces for us. So essentially what we're doing, what we're finding here is that this one obscure piece of Talmud is actually telling us a lot, a lot of very interesting things, provided we have the background and the information that, to assemble to create uh, uh, the, the, the framework for actually consuming the, these tremendous insights. I want to say another thing here. Olam, Olam Haba, so Shabbat. See, Olam Haba is compared to Shabbat. I want to say perhaps, what, what did the Rambam tell us? Remember we saw the Rambam said that Olam Haba, you can't explain it. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a, a blind person explaining color, right? Unless you've experienced it, experiential. If you haven't had the experience, well, you can't actually define it. I want to argue that Shabbat is the same thing. It's the same model of being experiential and not being explainable. Like, and I, I talk to people who observe Shabbat, and they, some of them, most of them, love it. And you say, well, w- w- what about Shabbat is so wonderful? You know, we talk about Oneg Shabbat, the pleasure of Shabbat. Well, what's so wonderful? You're just sitting around and you're not doing malacha. Well, what's so, what's so pleasant? Well, you got to experience it to actually understand it. Most uh, uh, Jewish ideas are rooted first and foremost in understanding it. It's very, it's very, you know, it's very, uh, uh, it's very much a, a, a cognitive first religion. Here, Shabbat is the opposite. Shabbat's like a You want to really understand Shabbat? Well, you got to experience it. If you haven't experienced it, well, then you're blind. I can't describe to you what color is like if you haven't actually experienced color. We find an example of this in the Talmud. Uh, there was uh, a discussion between a Kesar, which means a Caesar, and Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanina. And he asked him the question, is why is the food on Shabbat, why does it have such a wonderful aroma to it? It says we have a special spice. It's called Shabbat. Special spice. 
we put the spice in, and that's why it tastes so good. So he says, give me some of it. So as you say, if you observe Shabbat, well, then you can have that, then you can have that spice. If you don't observe the Shabbat, well, then you cannot have that spice. It doesn't work for you. So what it's telling us is that even with regards to the simplistic things of Shabbat, like the food of Shabbat, it's special because of something they got experience. I, 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 there's no way to even describe it. Just like Alam Abba. Alam Abba, you want, to, you want to understand it? Tell me, define. Well, no, you can't. You're the little, you, you know, you're the blind person, you're the deaf person, you're the person who has not experienced this well, then you can't, you can't understand it. So just like Shabbat is, told, we're told about Shabbat that it's, you have to experience it to understand it. Alam Abba is the same thing. That's another, another comparison. And lastly, this is my favorite one. Well, no, they're all favorite, but... Uh, they're all favorites. <laughs> so, with my kids. Best friends? Yeah. Um, so, we finally like this. So, what happens when we do a mitzvah? Better yet, what happens when you're really thirsty and you have a glass of water? What happens? Watch it. What do you feel? Satisfaction. You feel good. You feel relief, right? You feel relief. But you feel a lot of things. Well, you feel you're no longer thirsty. It's wonderful, the feeling of the of drinking the cold water and comes down your throat and it's wonderful, right? We ah yeah, was Now, what happens when you when you eat matzah? What do you feel? A dry mouth. <laughs> you feel like you're eating crackers. <laughs> what happens when you shake a lulav? Right, you know the mitzvah lulav and what do you feel? You feel awkward. Why? You're, yeah, you're doing it, you're doing but you feel like you kind of hope that your coworkers don't see you. Like I'm holding now, like a palm branch and the myrtles and the whatnot and the citron, and I'm shaking it in different directions. Right, that is uh, the reality of this world. In this world, we feel our body, we feel the agenda of our body. Right, the good, the bad. When we're hungry, we feel. When we need food, we have food. Well, you feel you feel hungry. If you haven't studied Torah in a month, you don't feel anything. You feel just fine. Our experiences, our feelings are, are linked to our body, but not to our soul. In Allah, it's the exact opposite. We don't feel a body. We don't eat. We don't need a drink. We don't need none of that. It's just the spiritual world. All we feel is our, is our body, right? Now, how, if we're going to understand what's like, well, Allah is so distant for us. It's like everything's upside down, you know? In this world, we're... We have the body and the soul, but all we feel is the body. And, you know, the, the body's in the driver's seat. The soul's in the back of the trunk, right? Banging in the trunk. It's, you know, that, that's what we feel in this world. Well, it, all we have is a soul. All we feel is a soul. And if we were to do a mitzvah in this world, so a mitzvah in this world, we do a mitzvah, we feel weird. You know, our body doesn't, doesn't make sense. We're eating matzah, we're chewing crackers, we're shaking matzah crawl, you know. We, the, we don't feel hungry when we, before we study Torah. Like if you went 12 hours without, without drinking, you wouldn't feel hungry. If you go 12 hours without studying Torah, you feel nothing. You feel fine, perfectly fine. Along about it, all you feel is your, is your soul, right? And when, if you were to do a spiritual activity in Olam Abba, would that feel natural or would that feel awkward? It would feel very natural. Right? And in fact, even, that, even the thought of doing something physical is out of totally non-existent. So it, it, the, the reality is completely changed. Lama Zen, Lama Ba. There's one mitzvah that we do in this world that we feel very natural doing as well. Shabbat. What's Shabbat? What's the core of Shabbat? Shabbat meal. What do you have? Right? We're told that on Shabbat you have to have wonderful meals. Right? If you have a steak, you see a steak in the store, 
on Tuesday, you got to buy it and save it for Shabbat. And then if you see a, a, even a better steak on Wednesday, you got to buy that one. And no matter if you, you always have to buy the best for Shabbat. And then what happens? What happens, Shabbat? You have all the delicacies in the world, right? And what happens? What does your body feel in Shabbat? Right? You're digging into that steak. You're like, hey, I can do this. This is okay. Shabbat is the one time, the one mitzvah, that we could get somewhat of an inkling of what the reality is in Olam Just like our bodies are so eager to get on board on that steak, we want to dig into the challah. Like you see challah, melons of challah. You're like, ah. Like your body's all on board. You feel very normal, very natural, very comfortable, right, engrossing yourself in, in a Shabbat meal. It doesn't feel awkward. You don't feel like you're shaking the lulav, like, what am I doing? I don't know, right? You don't feel that, right? You feel at home. You feel at ease. You feel like you're doing something that you crave doing. And it's a mitzvah. That's a me'in. That's a slight, a measure of the world to come. That's an example of what a spiritual reality is in Allah Abba. You feel right at home, right? So for us, to understand Allah Abba, well, we have to try to disassociate our body. That's hard for us to do. But Shabbos is the one mitzvah that we could get somewhat of an inkling of what the experience is like, where the natural feeling of doing a mitzvah is, you know, something that we're super comfortable with. Like, we're there, you know. We don't need to have to do what our soul wants, even though our body is protesting. That's that. Okay, so that's, that's Shabbat. We see we brought four reasons why, or four perhaps lessons of, of this, lessons about Shabbat, and also lessons the same, you know, six plus one, six thousand years plus one thousand years, thousand years of God uh, of us is one one day of God. Preparing for consuming, if you prepare before Shabbat, well then you could eat in Shabbat. If you prepare before Olam Abba, well then you can eat, and, and that also teaches about the consumption model of 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 schar versus pras, of 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 getting reward versus a prize. What's the nature of reward for a mitzvah? Number three, we said it's an experience that you have to, that you have to experience in order to understand just like that special spice and lastly that the same experience model that just like an experience of doing a mitzvah on shabbat could be something that you feel very comfortable with it feels very natural that is somewhat of an insight of what it's like to live in a reality where doing mitzvahs is very natural that's what you crave if you don't study torah for five hours you're hungry you're, you're, you're craving it right you know if you don't do a mitzvah if you know if you're not running to you're, you're chasing the mitzvah like like we like we would chase money you know like that's not a hassle and that's what you desire that's what you crave that's all you care about that is an insight into Olam Abba. yeah um okay so that's number one number two we said is the sun so someone already talked about that just like you know on a simple level we could say hey the sun is, is clarity Right. Sun is clarity. Sun provides light. Allah is clarity. Everything's right. The reality of our, of our soul and the kind of the breakdown of our existence that becomes clear. That's a simple level, but on, on a deeper level, we already mentioned that just like the sun, you can't look at the sun. You have no interface with the sun. So too, Allah is incomprehensible to us. Uh, we find several places in the Talmud the following statements: Kol Hanivim Lo Nitnavu. All the prophecies, we find wonderful prophecies, you mentioned Isaiah, but Ezekiel and Jeremiah, especially Isaiah, we talk about this future time, this wonderful time, that's only for Mimot HaMashiach, that's only for the days of Mashiach. But Olam Haba, Ain Lo Ra'ata, 
and I cannot see it. It's beyond us. And what's another thing? What's another example of something that our, our, our eye cannot see? Oh yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. The sun. Oh. The sun. So we look at the sun. You want to say what? What can we learn about Alamba? You know, you know what you do. You go out tomorrow midday and try to look at the sun. You can't learn much. It's very, very distant from us. Additionally, no, 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 another idea, perhaps. I think maybe it's once again it's honing into the same idea uh, that we're told once again from the Talmud. This is in Sanhedrin that in in Olam Haba the power of the sun will be diminished. We'll have a weaker sun. Only like that. No. Well, yeah, maybe that's what you would think, but that's not what it says. It says why? Because the light of the tzaddikim, the light of the righteous, will outshine, will be so much more bright than the sun that will render the power of the sun to be insignificant. So, i.e., the sun will not lose its power, rather its relative brightness compared to the brightness of the righteous will render it seemingly insignificant. What's the story of this? Talmud. Why, why would there be a sun? I don't know. If it's a spiritual reality, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. That. That's a good question. I don't know the answer. Uh, either way, that that's the idea. That the idea is that the state of an unleashed, uh, you know, if we know you're talking about the sun, the power of the sun, and the just the, the incredible force of the sun. How how many times bigger is the sun than our Earth? You know, tens of thousands of times larger. It's an enormous, enormous power. You know, it's 93 million miles away, and if it was a little closer, a little further away, it would either be uh, living in icicles, or we, you know, or we'd be burnt to a crisp. You know, we're at the right, the right, the sweet spot there of. Uh, of, of existence, right? Uh, the power of tzaddikim. We, 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 don't, we don't imagine the power of tzaddikim. Like we, we, what, what we're told is that the power... Yes, please. Yeah, thank you. I was trying to hint that when I was talking about the, drinking the water. But. <laughs> Maybe one. <laughs> uh, so, we don't really... We don't... Unfortunately, we don't really understand the power of a mitzvah. We don't. We don't because that's the re- the re- reality of our state. But the power of a mitzvah is that it renders a a a a, a state where, if we were to just see it, it would be it would outshine the sun. Like the sun would be nothing. What's the sun? It's nothing compared to, to compared to the righteous. So obviously, that's a visualization. Thank you so much for sure. I don't know how many coffee. So that's or, bring me, bring me a harder, harder than that. Uh, so that's once again, and we see this manifest in Moshe. Moshe was able to do this in this world. Like Moshe didn't have to have, uh, he didn't have to, he didn't have to untether his body because his body was at such a high level that it wasn't at anything more. Uh, it wasn't hindering his soul at all. It was they were on par, so to speak. Let's move on to the last one, so Tashmish. So we see yeah. wonderful lessons, Shabbos, Tashmish. So th- th- there's a major problem with the, with the Talmud. The Talmud does a lot of debate. Talmud asks a lot of questions. The Talmud deals with a lot of issues. But almost never does it say a noun and not tell us what noun it is. Means here there's a dialogue. It says Tashmish. Well, which kind of Tashmish? Is this kind of Tashmish? Well, no, this makes you weak. That must be that kind of Tashmish, right? The Talmud could have just very simply said Tashmish Amita. I'm sorry, Tashmish Nekavim, which means going to the bathroom. Why would the Talmud, if it's telling us a lesson, and three things are comparable to the world to come, right? three themes, 
No more than that. So say thing one, thing two, and thing three. And that's it. What does it say instead? It says thing one, thing two, and then something else. And we say, well, what's the something else? Is it this? No, it's not this. So it must be that. The Talmud could have just consolidated and say thing one, thing two, and thing three. It tells Tashmish, Mikavim, not Tashmish Amita. Just add another word. Why is there a dialogue in the Talmud? First you say an ambiguous noun, and then you have to ask the question, well, why this? What, you know, Clearly, part of the lesson, part of the lesson of what the Talmud is trying to teach us is borne out by the fact of what it's not on top of what it is. Does that make any sense? I must, yeah. Should I repeat that? What it's not. Yeah. I'll repeat it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was hard to follow. I had a hard time following myself. Maybe like this. If the, the, the Talmud very often has questions about things that it approaches. However, the questions are more like on, a, on, a, on not just on a definitional level. Talmud says, well, what does this word mean? You know? Doesn't, that, that's a very kind of strange... Just say what the word means, especially if all you need to do is add one word. Tashmish, and then say Tashmish Nekavim versus Tashramita. If all the Talmud wanted to tell us was that there are three things that are a measure of the world to come, it would have said those three things. Instead, it chooses to not say those three, say two things, and then say a third word, which is ambiguous, and it tells us that it cannot mean this, it must mean that. I.e., this is, what I, this is how I concluded my, when I said it previously, what it is not, i.e. intercourse, that's integral to the lesson. Thus, the Talmud wanted to say Tashmish, and then to have the question, well, which Tashmish are you talking about? Is it Tashmish Amita? Intercourse, no, it must be Damichi week. Rather, it must be Tashmish Nikavim. What's the lesson? So it's something that tash, that going to the bathroom is, but that yeah. intercourse is not. Yeah, so I, I always well, I, I think that there's there's a, there's a lot of you know I I I, I think we can theorize we'll say way you know going to the bathroom what's that and and intercourse what's that uh, you know maybe that's trying to create or trying to bring two bodies together I think there's a lot of rooms there's a lot of ways to go with this um, uh, I think we could also theorize well what's going to the bathroom well that's removing waste. Well, Lama Baz, you move the waste because you don't have a body. The body, if you think of the body, the, the body versus the soul. The soul is pure and the body is waste. Maybe you get rid of the body. I don't know. There's a, I think there's a lot of room for, for asking these questions. I don't know. I think I'm opening the door for, for a few different avenues here. It might not necessarily be in order. Oh, I, I don't think it is in order, in order. Is there any reference to when they were in the desert, Mana? Getting, getting the body, right? That's right. So... Because there's no waste. There's no waste. So is there any, does this tie in anyway or no? I think it does. I think it does. So, as a matter of your kids grew up and you don't say, and their clothes didn't wear out either. Yeah. Yeah, but what picture do they see? What do they see in life? 
How do they see the well? That's the, 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 the death. death, death, death blind. Yeah. Oh, the blind. Yeah. That's definitely. Yeah, but they've never heard of what it was. Like he's talking about, they've never seen color. How do you describe it to them if they never hear what it is? What language do they think it? If they're born deaf. It's a it's a picture because they still know what it is. Like how you never taught. Like I would say bowl and nuts and. The way we talk is because we hear yeah, it. But what language? When language we grow up, are we develop a palette. It's a picture because what do they, we hear what do they hear? it. What do they dream in? What, what they language? Never, they don't hear. Sign language is different in each language, so whatever their characters teach them. Well, either way, I, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's... They can't hear. They can't Why do we ask them? Yeah, ask um, The language is irrespective of the sound. Like you can read the language, right? Even if you don't, even if you're deaf. Which is what? What are our uh, deaf mute people that can't read? Illiterate deaf mutes. That's why. But let's go find some of them. <laughs> there you go. Sorry. Okay. So uh, going to the bathroom. Yeah. So going to the bathroom. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying my point is that even they could speak English or they could they converse or they 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 relate to the world in English. It's just not auditory, probably. That's what I assume. I. So they, yes. just, they just see the... Uh, but I, I mean, the question is, what if some of those have any association with any language? They can't read, they can't speak or hear. So then how do they relate to the things? I don't know, very, very curious question. I have a, some a friends who, who like are families of deaf people, I'm sure. But I think that it's, it's, it's English. It's all English. They read English. They don't have a, you know... Unless they're born in They don't have braille for, braille for deaf people, what's right? The, what's the question? Right. I don't know. The child is born deaf. That doesn't make no sense, though. find some statements that talk about manna as being like the spiritual food. Lechem avirim. When Father Talmud says that the Torah is only given to the next generation of those that eat, that eat man. I like that. I have to, I have to, we have to investigate that. Wow. There's room for investigation there. Either way, I like this. No. No, come on. It's not going to feed a nation of millions for... 40 day, 40 years. When I was in Israel. We're talking about billions upon billions of so different meals. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, when I was in Israel doing Wi-Fi, they claimed, they pointed out these, the indigenous plants. And they're like, that's mana. Rem- that's Remember, it, it, okay. it has to feed a nation of millions for 40 years. So think about that. Only if you're talking about, talking about, let's say a nation of, let's say, assume of conservatively 2 million people, we're about 6 million meals a day. Right, multiply that by 365. Well, let's do 369. Like, no one counts on fast days and whatnot, right? Multiply that uh, by 40 years. You're talking about billions upon billions of meals. You're not getting that from some some foliage that you found on the grass, especially when it fell down from the sky and breathing on on ragweed. So, like this. Here? 
was it, it was just pure. It didn't have any weights. So when they Your body it. just consumed it. Huh? Really? Yeah, what's up, face? So, no, I'm, um, yeah, well, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad that he never heard of it. No. Like, yeah. That's very convenient. Very and yeah. clothes never wore out either. That's a good yeah, thing. You don't have to buy shoes for four years. You didn't have to wash your clothes either. That's awesome. That's a good time. <laughs> Next. So, we find the following <laughs> like this. Uh, we find uh, another description, another <laughs> definition of Betalam Abba. In in the in, this is also in the Mishnah, and it says Yafe Sha'a Achat B'Tshuva U'Masim Tovim Ba'Olam Hazeh Mikol Chayav Olam Abba. It is better to have one hour of Tshuva of repentance and good deeds in this world. That's better than the entire life of of Olam Abba. Is that why you can't use the Nation? Can't use the murder. That's why. <laughs> Because you're not giving that person that last opportunity. No, because you're killing someone, right? <laughs> yeah. If someone doesn't have it, someone can't say you could kill me because they don't they're not proprietors over their own body. They're guardians. Well, that's what you cannot commit suicide. That's right. Yeah. My body says just someone commit suicide as a murderer. Right. You kill yourself. You have no right to kill yourself. So you Joel Law. Yeah. So and then we find also means that the, it's uh, one hour of pleasure in Olam Haba is greater than all the pleasures of this world. Uh, now, so what I'm saying is... What I'm saying like this, Olam Haba is, is a world of reward and punishment. Right? That's after everything, after the judgment, that, that's what consuming. And what we're saying is the pleasure of Olam Haba is so great that if you take all the pleasure of this world, it doesn't equal to one hour of Lama Ba. It doesn't either. There, 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 there's, no, there's no conversion rate. Now, additionally, we find, uh, this is Maimonides brings this, and this is a direct quote from Maimonides and his treatise on reward and punishment. He says as follows, this is a translation that uh, I found, I think, um, I don't remember if I, if I found it or if I did it myself. I think I might, might have written this myself, so it's in, originally in Hebrew. It's actually written originally in, in Arabic. In Hebrew letters, but this is from his treatise on reward and punishment uh, in the Mishnah, in the, in the Pirush Mishnayis. Right, the Ramam was the first to write a commentary on all sixty-three books of the Mishnah. In fact, he did it when he was a teenager, which is remarkable. He was the first one to ever do it. This is a thousand years after the Mishnah has been written. Uh, and in the Pirush Mishnayis, in the commentary of the Mishnah, he has an introduction to the uh, second to last chapter of the Book of Sanhedrin. Which talks about reward and punishment, and he gives an entire treatise on reward and punishment, like pages and pages long. Very, very fascinating. So, in it, he says as follows We live in a material world, and therefore are able to achieve only inferior and uh, discontinuous pleasures. Spiritual pleasures are eternal, they last forever, they never break off. Between these two kinds of pleasures, there is no similarity of any sort. What the Ramah Masala is like this, hey, listen, next the world to come is a world of pleasures. Fantastic. This world has a lot of pleasures as well, as well. Right? Like we talked about the, the drinking the water, a lot of pleasures, the ice creams, whatnot. All of them, it's fantastic. However, there's a difference, a a a, a, a qualitative difference. 
How so? But he says that the pleasure of the world to come, it's not like a, you have a pleasure and then you lose it. There's regression. There's bad aftertaste. There's a drop. It continues. As opposed to the pleasure of this world, it, it drops off. You know, you have the bad aftertaste. Right? You have the big ice cream and you have a stomachache. And even if you don't have a stomachache, well, you have the ice cream, but then once the ice cream is gone, well, the pleasure is gone, right? Right? So the pleasure is linked to the source of the pleasure, right? If you have the pleasure, then, you know, then you, that's the reality of the pleasure in this world. Thus, let's read the Talmud again. Tashmish. Tashmish is going to tell us about, 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 uh, this is in some way similar to, to, to the world to come. So someone says, wait, which Tashmish is it? Is it Tashmish? I mean, is it intercourse? No, that makes you weak. What it's telling us is that even though maybe we could safely argue the pleasure of intercourse supersedes the pleasure of going to the bathroom, which is a fair argument, still it's not about the quantity of pleasure. We said that you take all pleasures in the world, it doesn't equal to one hour in the world to come. It's a totally different. But we're talking about the nature of the pleasure, right? What kind of pleasure? So we say that intercourse is not that because it makes you weak. That is a physical pleasure. Because afterwards, right, what do you feel? Well, you feel weak. You're worse off. That's an example of a this-world kind of pleasure. Is there one pleasure in the world that we could think of that has some lasting effect? That doesn't have, that you don't feel worse afterwards than you did beforehand? (laughs) Charity. Right, going to the bathroom is it's a pleasure. Is that a great pleasure? Some we fan Some people do, you know. Every time we say, "Well, well you don't take it for granted," right? But it's a pleasure. We can argue that it's the only pleasure that has the same nature of spiritual pleasure, wherein after the activity is done. You feel better, or you feel you still feel good. It has some sort of lasting. It's not eternal, not forever, but it's in some small way similar. It's a measure of the world to come. It's something slightly similar. It's, it's not, you know, it's not the full thing. You know, but the idea of a pleasure that goes on and continues—that's lama ba. That's forever, right? Is in some small way in this world comparable to going to the bathroom. That's the only thing. Yeah. What, what, what about Tasha Shamita intercourse? Well, that's also a pleasure. But then afterwards, you know, there's the there's the effort. You get weak, right? So that's that's not. And uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, mitzvah. Remember, that's a good question. But what pleasure do you have of a mitzvah? Is that your body? Is that a bodily pleasure? Is that a this world pleasure? Is that a, is that an next world pleasure? We, 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 yeah, but what's the real pleasure of a mitzvah? That's your soul having a pleasure. That's a nice little, what you're bringing up is a, is a little loophole. This is a loophole. That the question is, is it possible to have next world's pleasure in this world? I don't want to wait till after I die and after I get resurrected and Mashiach. I don't want to wait till then. I want to have it now. My mind talks about this great pleasure that supersedes all the pleasures in this world. Is it possible to get it in this world? Is it possible for us to get it today or tomorrow or this week or here on terra firma? What you're saying is that maybe we could tap into the spiritual pleasures via doing a mitzvah, and then we, you don't feel, then you have that kind of lasting feeling. Hmm, uh, it's, 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 loopholes, huh? Pleasure, I mean, a lot of the 
So, 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 so you, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But that wouldn't necessarily fulfill yeah, the quality. Yeah. We're saying look, that wouldn't fulfill the criteria of this particular piece yeah, of Talmud. Yeah. This Talmud is looking for themes in this world that are this worldly, like the sun or Shabbat that we, we experience with our bodies, right? Or um, going to the bathroom. It's a physical thing that share a commonality, even a small commonality with the world to come. So what you're saying is that, well, hey, you know what? If someone does a mitzvah, well, then you feel good afterwards, right? But perhaps the pleasure that you feel of doing a mitzvah is not a physical pleasure. Obviously, it's not. There's no physical pleasure that you get. Your body doesn't feel it. It's a spiritual pleasure. It's, you feel good within yourself, you know? Maybe that's your soul living a little bit like Olam Haba. In a slight way. Which is a crazy thought, that it's possible to tap into this wonderful pleasure that we talk about, even in this world. We don't have to wait for Olam Haba. Pretty incredible. And in fact, you're a thousand percent right. A thousand percent right. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll read you from Chal uh, in the, the, uh, the modern work on Musar, uh, Path of the Just. Mm-hmm. starts off with the question of what's the purpose of it all. Um, so that's what he does. That's what he says. Dude, but just the first two paragraphs. Very, 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 very famous. Um, right at the beginning of, 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 of Lutzata. So he says like this. Ha'adam lo nivra ela Can someone finish this? Lehit aneg al Hashem. Man was only created to have pleasure of God. Have spiritual pleasure. I'm going to need you to hear, pay attention here. I'm going to need you to do some callbacks here. Ready? Man is created for the sole purpose of having the pleasure of God. For this is the true pleasure. And the greatest idun. How would you translate idun? Pleasure. It's another word for pleasure. In Hebrew, there's two words for pleasure. Right? We have two Hebrew speakers. They both nod in their heads. Right? Huh? Like an Aiden, that's right. Man is created for the pleasure of God. What's that pleasure? That's the ta'anug ha'amiti, the real ta'anug, the real pleasure, and the greatest idun, the greatest, also another word of pleasure. And then he says as follows. Vihine. Makom ha'ta'anug hazeh hu olam haba. The place of this ta'anug is olam haba. The place of this pleasure is olam haba. Olam haba is designed for having the pleasure. Now, if we read if we read this word very critically, he's saying something amazing, which Brad you actually hinted to. What's he saying? Uh-huh. What? Islam. That was bad. Very Islam. Oh, Islam. Oh, Islam. Wow. So it says like this. I know this is it's a, like this is somewhat of a, of a critically analyzing the text here. He says that Olamaba is two things. It's a great ta'anud and a great idun. And or, or he says the pleasure that we're created for is to have this pleasure of God, which is the ta'anud and idun, the two words for pleasure in Hebrew. And then he says the place of this ta'anud is Olamaba. Place and he only uses one of those words that he that he 
that he described as, as having this, this pleasure. And that's the chasam question. Wait a minute. If you say the pleasure of God is a great time, is a is a true tanud, the real true pleasure and the true idun, well then why would you say the place of this tanud using only one of those words? Clearly, what he's indicating is that in this world on planet Earth, Alamazeh, there is a way to achieve this great pleasure as well. We don't have to wait for Alamaba. We're just waiting for the next world. And I feel like the crowd is getting antsy, so I'll, I'll just say very quickly that if you look, and it's highly advisable, if you to find your hands on a Sefer HaMitzvot, the book of mitzvahs of Maimonides, and go to mitzvah number three, right? You have it all in your house. Right? <laughs> go to mitzvah number three, which is the mitzvah of Ahafta et Hashem Elokech, Yishalav Hashem your God. He literally says word for word what this Ramchal is saying, what the Lutzato is saying, and he tells you how to do it. Thus, if you want to have this greatest pleasure that ever existed, the highest level of pleasure, the pleasure that you were created for, or you, when I say you, means all of mankind, the pleasure that's really designed to be in full force in Lama Ba, if you want to have it in this world, you want to know how to do it, go to Rambam, go to Mitzvah, go to Sefer, to the Book of Mitzvot, Mitzvot, one of the major works of the Rambam, right? Go to Mitzvah number three and read it. And he'll tell you how to do it. Uh, once you have, but uh, but I will I will tell you I will tell you as a caveat before you do that, you when once you do that, you can never you can never come back. You're giving up the blue pill, rub pill exactly. You're giving up something. Okay, and now, and what are you giving up? I'll read you the last quote of the rub, and then I'll let you guys go. I can tell you guys want to run away. I don't know. I feel antsiness. I'm antsy as well. Maybe I'm just feeling myself. <laughs> So, <laughs> this is once again from the Ramam in that treatise that we, that we talked about. Men who choose to purify themselves will reach the spiritual height. They will neither experience bodily pleasures, nor will they want it. What, what the Ramam is telling you is that if you go down this path, if you want to have the spiritual pleasures, you want to go to mitzvah number three in the book of mitzvahs and actually get what the what Lutzato is talking about and the Ramam is talking about, get the world, next world's pleasures in this world. No, no, you won't. You will neither experience it. Won't it? Won't do it for you anymore. The bodily pleasure. You won't even want it. You lose your desire for it. But why? They will resemble a powerful king. You would hardly want to go back to playing ball with children on the floor like he did before he became king. Such games were exciting for him when he was a child, and was unable to understand the real difference between playing ball and and having the 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 pleasure of, of being a monarch, like children. We now praise and glorify the, the pleasures of the body and do not understand the pleasures of the soul. What he's telling you is, once you go and follow his recipe, Mamani's bits of theory, I'll tell you what it is. You follow that, you're essentially giving up. You're giving up something. Why? Because no longer will the pleasures and delights of the sizzling steak entice you. That doesn't, doesn't do it for you at all. You have zero interest in that. You know, that's it, it, it not appealing to you. It's like, you, uh, you want to you go and play games and, 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 and you know, dig in the sandbox with your hands? No, you matured from that, right? You'll mature and advance in, in what, what's exciting and pleasurable for you, but you'll have to give up something that won't, won't do it for you anymore. You like the king, you know? The king doesn't want to play with his friends' marbles on the floor like they did when they were kids. That's not exciting for him anymore. But, uh, I, I don't know the source, but I thought someone prayed to take away, you know, idols, etc. 
promiscuity. Well, that's the Yetzirah. That's the Talmud in two places. Once in Yuma and once in Sanhedrin, where it says that they prayed to get rid of the uh, of the of the urge for idolatry, and they saw it was like a fire, a fiery lion that emerged from the temple, and they said, "Hey, what the heck? Once we're doing this, why don't we get rid of the of of the desire for for adultery?" For adultery? Yeah. And they got rid of it. They got rid of it, and then and then three days later, they saw that even the chickens stopped hatching eggs. And they realized, well, this has a very vital function because if you want the world to continue, you have to have that same that passion has to exist. Um, so what they did was instead they made it. They made a compromise. They prayed that people shouldn't have a desire for incest. People shouldn't crave like their sisters and whatnot. I, I heard it different. Well, that's what the Talmud says. So really. Hundred percent. Give you the sources. No, no, that's interesting. I heard it. That's the source. They, they prayed, and God said, "Okay, we'll take away this, but we won't take well, away that." Well, no, that's not how. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not trying to argue with what no, you no, saw. No, I don't no, know. I don't know what you did see. But like, we, we go to the sources. Maybe I'm wrong. No, you're not. I, it's possible. Unlikely. So, so the modern version for my money is third. It's God. Once you go block. You never go what? Right? Once you go what? <laughs> Something like that. Okay, I don't know what you just said, but yeah, in the modern. Once modern, you modern, try modern. it, you you won't go back, right? That's try what? what? The third. No, what he's telling you is that it, it won't appeal to you anymore. Right. You will be right. Absolutely. Once you try the, the. Thus, yes. So thus, in conclusion, I think we could say that this Talmud that started off as being very bizarre, very I don't know, very peculiar, very odd, very strange. Uh, and very cryptic. It says something about Lama and compared it in the sun and Shabbat. It doesn't seem to have rooted in any, there's no structure to it. And what, what's the lesson? It seems very strange to us. But once we spend time with it, we understand that we look at all the other sources, we find a lot of tremendous lessons about life, about Lama about Shabbat, about what it is that we're here for, all these incredible things. And, and you know, I think that's. If that's the only lesson that we come away with, that the words of the Talmud are highly measured, and the 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 details uh, and the exact words that they use are are there for a purpose, and everything that they're telling us, they're telling us for a reason, and we might not see it, but it's there. If that's what we came out with, then great, and that's I think wonderful. And if we came out with some other insights in life, that's also fantastic. Either way, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was wonderful. Okay, now we can start the, the, the Torah class. Yeah, let's go. Uh, we've done the introduction, okay, that's right. Yes. <laughs>